Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Well, we made it. This is our seventh show, and it's our Q&A episode. We are going to dedicate not just the podcast today, but next week's podcast to your questions. We had so many questions that we decided we needed to take two episodes to answer as many of the questions we could. And that's because you sent in some really great questions. And one listener who sent in a question will receive Archibald Alexander's book, Thoughts on Religious Experience. We'll announce the winner at the conclusion, not today, but of next week's Q&A episode. But before I begin the questions, I want to thank all of you who took the time to write and send in your questions. They were all thoughtful, and I believe will help many listeners who have the same question. All right, here's our first question, and it's from Nate of Oklahoma. Nate writes, After listening to Is the Bible the Third Person of the Trinity? The question that comes to my mind is, how do we approach our time in God's Word with a proper mindset? Well, Nate, thank you for the question. Your question gets right to the heart of spiritual experience. The Bible is the Word of God, and as the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This means that if the Bible is the Word of God, and of course it is, then it is the revelation of God's heart to us. And that's the way we should read the Bible. We read to hear God's heart, and by hearing His heart, we get to know Him. But they really don't know how to apply the Scriptures to their lives. So, in a time of biblical information, unlike any previous generation, we are one of the most biblically illiterate generations of Christians ever. The reason to read your Bible is to know God personally and to hear Him speak to you. That's it. Now, there are two ways to do this, and it requires both of these ways. You should not just do one and leave the other undone. First, you read to commune with God. And second, you read to comprehend God and His ways. Commune and comprehend. Most do not read to comprehend God, but the information that the Bible gives. This is a more academic approach to the Bible. The Bible is viewed more like a textbook rather than a personal communique from one who loves us. Therefore, the Bible becomes something to master, to learn the information, so that the reader becomes a scholar of Scripture. This is how you can be a mile wide in knowledge, but an inch deep in relationship with God. I need, yes, I need to know the facts of the Bible. So don't misunderstand me. I need to work at rightly interpreting the statements of Scripture. It's important to dig deep and to analyze its contents so I can truly understand its meaning. But if I stop with correct interpretation 
and I don't move to the person who communicated the words of the Bible, then I have failed to read the Bible the way God intended. Another way many Christians have conditioned themselves to read their Bibles is in a more legalistic manner. Churches and church leaders have trained their members to read in order to get through so many chapters a day, whether it be one or more, depending on the reading plan advocated. If the Bible is the primary way God speaks to us, which it is, then we need to learn how to approach it and read it as God's voice to us. Too many of you are reading in order to ease your conscience. In other words, you read because you believe you're obligated to read the Bible. You believe this placates or appeases God and puts you in the place where he can bless you and you can receive his blessings. If you didn't read your Bible today, you think God is so displeased with you that he can't bless you. Others of you think the Bible's like an amulet. You read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. All of these are pitiful reasons to read the Bible. And they miss altogether the real reason for this amazing book. Now, Nate, we will get into this more in depth in an upcoming show. Well, our next question comes from Shelby in Kentucky. His question is, it seems like in American churches, most efforts of evangelism are basically encouraging people to share certain Bible facts to someone and then encouraging them to make a decision or pray a prayer. If it is the Spirit that must speak and work to bring someone from darkness and death into light and life, how should this change and direct our evangelism? Thank you, Shelby, for this great question. Too many ministries and ministers believe that the gospel needs some external adornment. They think it needs a great deal of help and promotion, finesse, and that we need to make the gospel more appealing, attractive, and alluring. It's as if the Word of God is the proverbial ugly duckling, and it's our job to give it a makeover and turn it into a striking and beautiful princess. We need to learn evangelistic techniques that draw the listener, and much like a salesman persuading a buyer, the evangelist must show the beneficial features of the gospel. These so-called modern missionaries think if they're to be successful, they need to perhaps minimize certain features of the gospel. Don't focus much on sin, judgment, man's perverseness. No, no, focus on how Jesus can make his or her life so much better. How being a Christian will make them to have a happier life, happier home, happier job. I remember a pastor telling me years ago how he was involved in a major evangelistic crusade with a world-famous evangelist. Thousands were gathered in the stadium to hear what the preacher had to say. The evangelist preached his sermon and gave the altar call. A man walked forward, and this pastor, friend of mine, greeted him asking him why he had come forward. My friend told me that the man said this exactly to him. Well, I'm a race car driver, and if I understood the preacher tonight, if I give my life to Jesus, Jesus will make me a better race car driver. Friend, 
Jesus didn't die to make you a better race car driver. That's not saying becoming a Christian won't make him a better race car driver. It'll make him a better human being, no doubt. But that's not the ultimate reason why Jesus came and died. He died to save us from the wrath of God, the sin that deserves God's justice. Now listen carefully. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a declarative word, meaning its power is in its declaration. The gospel doesn't need any help. It needs no additions or subtractions. It doesn't need the aid of a man or a woman to cleverly speak in such a way as to convince the sinner to accept the gospel bait and hook them and reel them in. Creative arguments and masterful intellects are not necessary for the power of the gospel to have its effect. The Apostle Paul said that the power of the gospel is the gospel. There's no additional power needed. Listen to what he said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel is God's power. There is no greater power than the truth of our blessed Savior. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said, quote, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, he's meaning apologetic books, the books on defense of the gospel and the validity of the gospel. He says it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beast. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the very best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries, end of quote. The Apostle Paul said something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what does this verse mean? The gospel has no appeal to those who are lost. They simply think that it's utter foolishness to believe that a man who died in a barbaric death nearly 2,000 years ago has any effect on their lives today, much less change their eternal destiny. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ah, that part of the verse stands in absolute contrast. Now, what does it mean? Why 
Some sinners hear the gospel and they reject it as foolishness while other sinners hear it and it's the power of God. And the answer is, the gospel has the power to open the blinded eyes, free the foolish mind, and shed light on the dark heart on those whom God grants the gospel to have this effect in their lives. To those who God has chosen to save, the gospel becomes effectual to them. The gospel impacts them. It compels them to come to Christ. It draws them to the Savior. This is its own power. But that power is not released except to those whom the Lord wills. There are many who hear the gospel, but they don't hear it. Their hearts and minds don't understand what their ears heard. But then there are those whom God gives ears to hear. Then they hear it, they perceive, they understand. Therefore, I say to you, preach the word. Don't be overly concerned with eloquence or cleverness. Don't be intimidated by the most intelligent, because even the unconverted intelligent are truly fools, even as the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Their sin has made them irrational and unreasonable until God opens their foolish minds to really hear the truth. So, keep declaring the truths of the gospel. How do you know that the Holy Spirit will not use it to open their keen intellect and show them their great sin of unbelief? And this is the very point of the apostle. The gospel is the only thing the Spirit of God uses to illuminate the heart of sinners. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he uses, and he uses it exclusively. There is no other good news. And so we must pray and trust that the Holy Spirit has only one instrument to open the heart of the sinner, and it is the gospel faithfully proclaimed. Well, our next question is from Wade from Oklahoma. Wade writes, what are some ways we can differentiate between true experiential fellowship that our Lord intended and unbiblical experiences even within our own selves? Wade, thanks for this great question. This, to me, is such a necessary and vitally important question. There seems to be two major responses to experiential Christianity. And what I mean by that is a Christianity that is real, sensible, felt, experienced. The first is to accept almost everything and anything that comes along as being from the Lord. This is why we have so much of the tomfoolery that we have in most of our charismatic circles. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because there are some who claim to be charismatic who do not go along with the abusive emotionalism, if not demonism, of the popular charismatic movement. These dear folk are honorable, and they love the Lord, and they despise what's being done in the name of the Holy Spirit. What I am critical of is this kind of charismata that endorses and even promotes experience over doctrine. 
These are motivated by the philosophy that experience Trump's doctrine. They believe nothing is higher than the subjective experience, not even the Bible. And therefore, when you take this approach, you're going to fall for anything because you have no objectivity, no objective standards that either approves or disapproves the experience. This opens yourself to psychological manipulation and, yes, demonic activity. Now, this is one approach to the experiential element in Christianity. The other approach is to rule out anything experiential or subjective. Out of a fear of the abuses prevalent today, men say such subjectivity where God's presence can be experienced, God can manifest His glory, or even God can lead immediately and directly without the medium of Scripture, is no longer possible. All that is experiential ended with the apostles in the canonization of Scripture. Now, friends, listen carefully. I believe this approach has had disastrous effect upon a good number of true Christians. It's left them with an academic Christianity, void of any feeling, for fear of emotionalism. The logic is that we must not even allow the possibility of any of these things. For the moment you barely crack the door open, all sorts of evil will creep in. Well, I have tried to show through this podcast that this approach isn't any more biblical than the first approach of accepting anything experiential. Listen, real life is messy. Which would you rather have, the cold lifelessness of a cemetery or the somewhat chaotic fervor of a home filled with several children? As for me, give me the life of a few vivacious children any day over the empty, cold form of the graveyard. Perhaps I'm building a straw man argument, you say, contrasting Christianity as an either-or proposition. Either you have lifeless churches filled with unemotional Christians, or you have churches that are more like a wild zoo. Well, I understand your criticism. But I'm not building the argument with an either-or logic. No, I'm not doing that because I think there is a third alternative, which is the biblical proposition. I'm talking about a biblical subjectivity, or as we like to say here at RTM, a biblical spirituality. A biblical spirituality where warm-hearted feeling is expressed as the glory of Christ is contemplated, as the Bible presents him to us, should be the norm. Please listen. Truth is dangerous. Biblical truth is dangerous. Now, how could I make such an extreme statement? The Christian must walk a tightrope. There's a tension that comes from truth. Any slight deviation in any direction, and immediately you are in trouble. That's why biblical balance is a necessity. And truth, wrongly used, becomes dangerous. There's always the temptation to move to the extreme, to move to the right or to the left. That's always a constant battle. And that's why Wade's question is so important. We don't want to fall in either ditch of cold intellectualism 
or unbiblical fanaticism. Even though we're going to have upcoming episodes where we answer this question freely and expansively, I want to attempt to answer it in one sentence and then take only a a few moments to unpack it. There is a way that you can differentiate. And the way we can differentiate between true experiential fellowship that our Lord intended from the unbiblical experiences, even within our own selves, is this way. True fellowship that our Lord intended will increase, increase our fascination with Christ himself for his own sake. Satan, or even our own imagination, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, will never, ever exalt Christ alone. Our blessed Lord said, it would be the ministry of the Holy Spirit to exalt him, the Lord Jesus. He said in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's why I can say you can differentiate, because when God is working, Christ is magnified. Any encounter with the true and living God always makes the heart to love the Son more, to be carried away with Him and not just the experience of Him. We are not seeking experiences for the sake of experiences. To seek the experience because of the way it makes you feel or the way it makes you feel about yourself is nothing more than self-centeredness. But when you can lose yourself in the glory of the Son and you walk away more fascinated with Him, hungry for just Him and His exaltation in you and in others, well then, you've had a true and biblical experience. Our flesh and the devil will always lead away from a focus and fascination with Christ. And that is the problem with much modern American Christianity. It's a sham, an empty shell. As Paul said to Timothy, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The center of most people's Christianity is themselves. It's all about them, and Christ is sprinkled in because he too is centered on them. True Christianity doesn't work that way, friend. True Christianity leaves you moved by, carried along by, and captivated by Jesus. Wade, if you go back to episodes five and six, I think we thoroughly answer this question and give adequate number of tests that you can judge whether you are being biblical or not. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Wow, this episode went by so fast. In our next episode, we're going to pick up from here and answer more of your questions, which we deeply appreciate. Thank you for taking the time weekly and tuning into this show, and I'm greatly honored that you would do that. Before I leave you today, I I want to let you know about our new book, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation. 
The book was released uh, last week of March, and I'm receiving many great reviews from readers. It was written not just for those who struggle with assurance. It's also written for those who don't struggle. It explains the nature of faith and how all Christians must fight to maintain faith's position. Most books on assurance approach the subject from a what I call a checklist approach. They use biblical tests of faith, and if the reader can pass those tests, well, they should believe they are a Christian. And I'm not opposed to that approach. I've actually used that in counseling many. I think 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, is actually a wonderful treatise doing this very thing. But my book's approach is to discern and diagnose the cause of doubt and unbelief. In the end, assurance is a faith issue. Assurance is the fruit of faith. And you can have faith without assurance, but you can never have true biblical assurance without faith. And so the book, The Fight of Faith, shows how those who have been given faith by the Lord can fight to maintain it and even increase it. You can purchase the book through our website, realtruthmatters.com. That's realtruthmatters, all one word, dot com. Well, until our next episode, may the Lord bless you with the experience of His love. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.